would you fix the world? That's the big question. We asked uh, folks in the community a few months back. Uh, we got hundreds of responses through social media, through fr- you know, friends asking. And we sort of tried to group what people said into big categories. And uh, we picked the top four most common responses. And that's basically been the basis of a, of a sermon series. So a few weeks ago, uh, the number one response was that we needed to fix people. Uh, it was the problem of selfishness, the me, me, me culture. So we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you want to hear the, uh, what was said to that, then you can go online. You can listen to the audio or see a video of it. Then last week, the second response was basically, we need to fix authority, fix government. That that's the big issue that will fix the world. So you can check that out from last week as well. This week, we're looking at the third most common response, which was, uh, we need to fix religion. This was stated both positively, you know, people said, you know, we just need to be a little bit more, um, encourage a greater respect and tolerance for other religions, while others were just a little bit more blunt. We should abolish religion, ban religion. That was uh, quite a common response. Uh, John Lennon, after the Beatles had a solo career, his probably his biggest hit was the song Imagine, where the millionaire sat at his white piano and, and sang a song about imagine that there was no possessions, imagine that there was no countries, imagine that there was no religion, and then the world would be as one. Right? Well, I mean, we yearn for that, don't we? That unity. Um, And since uh, Lennon sang that song, there have been so many high-profile acts of um, terrorism by Islamist groups. And that's intensified for some the sense that religion is dangerous. Anybody who holds to absolute truths is dangerous. Uh, that, That will be the cause for prejudice, for inequality, for violent extremism. If we could just ban religion, the thinking goes, then, then we would fix the world. Now, I think that's quite a catchy idea. It's, it's conventional pub wisdom. You know, after a, your second pint, well, you know, if we just ban religion, it'd be all great, wouldn't it? But is it not a little bit simplistic? I want to briefly consider three myths that kind of feed into this idea of ban religion, fixing it all. And then I want to examine what the Bible has to say about religion. That's kind of where we're heading this morning. So first off, three myths. Myth number one, religion poisons everything. That was the catchy subtitle of Christopher Hitchens' book that came out about 10 years ago now, uh, God is Not Great. And the subtitle, Why Religion Poisons Everything. But is that true? Does it really poison everything? Now, in terms of considering just the impact of Christianity, does the everything include the ways that Christianity has shaped social care? Uh, We've been hearing this morning uh, from Ian about his dad, Andrew, who in India has worked to sort of educate the poorest of the poor, provide hostels for orphans and for those who couldn't afford it so they could get an education and step up. And really this has been the story wherever the 
Christian gospel has gone, wherever Christians have gone, hospitals have started up, orphanage works, uh, free education was pioneered right here in Scotland, the ragged schools that then got adopted by the state. Does, does everything include that? Does everything include the impact that people have had on social justice because of their Christian faith? Famously, the, abs, uh, the um, ab, abolitionist movement uh, that sort of ended the um, African slave trade. Or even think about the civil rights movement uh, where people like Martin Luther King were very much inspired by the Christian faith. Does the everything include uh, the impact of Christianity on arts and culture? As you look at some magnificent architecture, as you see some great paintings, as you hear the music of, of Bach and Handel, uh, all shaped by the Christian faith, does it include the ethical foundations of uh, Western civilization? We hear a lot of talk about rights, human rights, but people forget, where did this come from? It, it didn't spring up elsewhere. Why did it, where did it come from? Well, it came from a Judeo-Christian framework that we are all made in the image of God and therefore we have an inherent dignity and equality. So all this talk of rights rests on nothing unless it's rooted into this Judeo-Christian understanding of being made in the image of God. So does the, uh, does the everything that religion poisons, does it include that? No. It seems a bit churlish, doesn't it, to not to recognize the good alongside the bad. Myth number two, religion causes all the wars in the world. Now, how often have you heard this? Oh, yeah, religion, it's caused all the wars, isn't it? That's, that's what people say. And, of course, terrible things have been done in the name of religion in the world. People have done some horrible things in the name of religion. But is it true that religion causes all the wars? Well, in their three-volume Encyclopedia of War, it's edited by Charles Phillips and Alan Axelrod, um, they document the history of recorded warfare. And they list 1,763 wars, and only 123 have been classified to involve a re religious cause. That means that religion uh, accounts for 7% of all wars. And um, religious wars account for less than 2% of all people killed in warfare. And the truth is that non-religious motivations, that naturalistic philosophies bear, uh, bear the blame for nearly all of humankind's wars. Lives lost during conflict because of religion pales compared to those experienced under regimes who had nothing, they, want, they had wanted to have nothing to do with the idea of God. The top two being Joseph Stalin, where they estimate 42 million people died, or Mao Zedong, over 37 million people. No, religion is not the cause for all the wars. In fact, you can mount a pretty strong case that atheistic communism is. What's the common denominator in all these wars? It's us. It's human beings. Which takes us back to what we saw on the very first week of what Jesus said about our fundamental problem is. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says it's our sinful hearts. Out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. 
The third myth is that you can lump all religions together. And it's simply not intellectually honest to do so. It's very easy to say religion poisons everything, but actually, is all religion essentially the same? Well, not really, only in a superficial way. If you examine what is at the base of each of the religions, they're quite profoundly and mutually contradictory. Uh, Take the Eastern examples of Hinduism or Sikhism and Buddhism. Hinduism is premised on the existence of a vast array of gods, polytheism, each with their own particular role to play and expectations of the faithful. Uh, Guru Nanak, who was a one-time devout Hindu and a founder of the Sikh faith, he came to reject this polytheism and instead insisted there was just one deity who alone is worthy of worship. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, on the other hand, he also rejected Hinduism, not by proposing the existence of one God, but by negating theism altogether, a position that's still held in classical Buddhism. Now, I don't think you need to be studying mathematics at Edinburgh University to work out that there's some fundamental contradictions going on between those three faiths. If there are many gods, there can't just be one god. If there's one god, there can't be many gods. And if there's no god at all, then there can be neither many gods nor one god. They're all mutually contradictory. Now, of course, Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists should, I think, learn to love each other, respect each other's humanity and freedom of expression. But they can't for a moment, without sacrificing intellectual honesty, uh, regard theology, uh, their theology as, as basically saying the same thing. In fact, it's very arrogant of us enlightened Westerners to say, well, you know, they're all basically saying the same thing. Well, that's kind of a very arrogant thing to say. Uh, the novelist and poet Steve Turner uh, penned this rather tongue-in-the-cheek poem called Creed, if you can just put it up. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. Now, if you want to think more about other faiths, and their different claims of the world religions. And, um, and then think about how would you navigate your way around working, uh, assessing their truth claims. Can I commend this great little book? If I were God, I'd make myself clearer. Uh, we've got about 10 copies, five quid, bargain, reduced price. You could uh, take one today and uh, think a little bit more about that. So three myths. Now I want us to examine what the Bible has to say, because actually the Bible has some very powerful critiques of religion itself. The Bible slams false religion and idolatry, while at the same time saying that it is possible to know the true and living God. Now it's a massive topic, but I want you to examine just one bit of the Bible in Acts chapter 17. Now if you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up and keep it up and the stewards will bring it to you. Uh, just keep your hand up and they'll bring you a Bible. I'd really love you to have a Bible in front of you if you don't. Or uh, open your Bible on your apps, on your phone or whatever. Someone will bring it to you. And if you have a church Bible, you'll find Acts chapter 17 on page 1000. 
113. 1,113. Don't be shy. If you don't have a Bible, it'll really help you. Now, lads, you come every week. You should bring a Bible. But yeah, you can have one today. Page 1113. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 17. Starting from verse 16. So these events happen after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, spread out into the world. And this guy, Paul, is in Athens. And this is what he saw and did. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, rather He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, keep, keep your Bibles open. I want you to notice just simply that first off the bat, we are all worshippers and incurably religious. See, what Paul saw in Athens was a city that was full of idols, uh, full of temples and symbols of worship to many different gods. Now, that might seem very different to us today. Last week, a study showed that 53% of the UK described themselves as not religious. That is, that they have no kind of uh, affiliation to any of the world religions. And yet, I want to tell you today that everyone in Edinburgh is a worshipper. Everyone in Edinburgh is a worshipper. Go into the supermarkets and the newspaper shops and look at the magazines and you can see what we idolize in our culture. Uh, whether that's cars, physique, glamour, sex, beauty, success, food, nationalism. There are lots of things that people basically live for. It's what gives them their identity. It's what they'll make sacrifices for. It's what they believe will really make them happy. It's what life is all about. It's what they live for. Um, there are lots of places of worship in Edinburgh today. They just look like shopping malls. Uh, they look like uh, football stadiums. They look like cinemas. They look like nightclubs. And people go out there to worship, to find community, and to kind of fill this sort of, this hole in their soul. And the place is full of worship. We have different forms. We have different images for our worship today. But in essence, we're very similar to Athens that Paul encountered in the first century. In fact, what do they call Edinburgh? The Athens of the north. But because, because alongside the, the idols and, and the things of worship, it, it was also a place of learning and philosophy. Paul encountered these uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, it sounds very exotic, but the truth is, is that Edinburgh is full of Epicureans and Stoics today. The Epicureans, they, they followed the, this chap Epicurus of the 2nd and 3rd century before Christ. And he basically taught this. The chief goal in life is to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and avoid, the, and avoid pain at all costs. That sounds pretty contemporary, don't you think? Uh, this life is all that there is. And uh, so if it feels good, do it. Pursue pleasure. Avoid anything that is difficult or painful. No real concept that there is a God who is there and that one day we will stand before him and give account for our lives. The Stoics, well, what did they believe? Well, they followed a man called Zeno that encouraged people to be self-sufficient. Their philosophy basically said, look, you can't stop bad and good things happening to you. And uh, you just, it's just unavoidable. Life is like that, good and bad. There's no God to care for you or to guide you. So basically roll with the punches and keep singing the Gloria Gaynor song, I Will Survive. And that's how a lot of people live. Now what does the Bible 
have to say to a world and society that is just like that? Well, look at the Apostle Paul here. Look what he has to say. Verse 16. Notice how he, his experience as he looked at this idolatry. It says in verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see a city that was smothered with idols. As a, as a Jew who knew his Hebrew scriptures, he knew that there was only one true God. And all this uh, misdirected worship away from the true and living God was something that caused him pain. He, know that, he knew, that, knows, knew that God alone deserved that worship. And people were worshiping false ideas of God and lesser things than God uh, that alone deserved this worship and praise. And it kind of really distressed him. But I think what is utterly remarkable is how he responded. Verse 16, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. Verse 18, when he met these philosophers, he began to debate with them. Now let me tell you why this is remarkable. There would have been a time in Paul's life where if he saw blasphemous things, he'd have gone absolutely crazy and, and resorted to violence. In fact, there was a time when he first heard about Christianity, when he heard people saying, well, you know, that Jesus that was crucified on a cross and was raised on the third day, he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, and this, this absolutely incensed him. He, he knew that actually someone who died on a cross was someone who was cursed by God. This couldn't be the Messiah King that God had promised. And so he set about basically persecuting those who followed the way. He advocated violence. He dragged people into prison. He um, approved of those who stoned Christians to death. That's how he responded once in his life. He was, in a sense, a religious terrorist. But then something dramatic happens. You can read about it in the book of Acts. It's, it, it's told on at least three occasions. The story of how when he was on the Damascus Road, heading somewhere to kind of persecute more Christians, something shocking happened and dramatic in his life where the person he thought was dead and buried appeared to him, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, stopped him in his tracks and turned his whole life around. And his life changed dramatically. This man of hatred became a man of love. In my Bible reads today, I was reading 1 Corinthians 13, a great chapter on love. Well, the religious terrorist became the man who just preached about love. The, the man who was proud became humble and servant-hearted. The man who was a persecutor became the great preacher and proclaimer of the Lord Jesus Christ. A complete turnaround. And this man, he's greatly distressed as he sees a city full of, of idols and and notice, what does he do? He doesn't go about smashing up the images. He doesn't start acting in violence towards those engaged in false worship. No, instead he reasons with them. He debates. He proclaims. You know, as an aside, this blanket statement that religion is dangerous fails to honestly look at each religion in particular. Do you know what? The world has nothing to fear about biblical Christianity. And I think deep down the media know this because they have no problem mocking Christian faith but actually much more sensitive about mocking other world religions where it might get a bit risky for them. 
Take an honest look at Christianity. Follow the life and teachings of Jesus and there's just no grounds for anyone to advocate violence in the name of Jesus. After all, he was the one who taught us to love our enemies. You know, if you're an enemy of Christianity, that's the safest place to be because Christians are commanded to love you. And you know, as Christians, we know that you cannot force anyone to genuinely believe something is true. You can't force people to believe that Christianity is worth anything by political or physical force. And so when Paul was converted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, his response to a city that was deluged and smothered with idols was to engage people with words, with persuasion, with debate, to reason with people. And look with me about what he says. He first of all engages with the, the culture in verse 22. People of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. And he, he points out this, um, this altar with this amazing inscription to an unknown God. They were really hedging their bets, weren't they? They had temples to nearly everyone. But hey, what about if they'd missed somebody out? I've got an idea. We'll create an altar to the unknown God so that we can appease uh, whoever that person is. And this is the problem with polytheism, really, is you don't know which God is top trumps in whatever part of the world you're in. And, and you don't know really how to please them. Uh, all this religion, all these objects of worship, but by their own admission, they were still ignorant. And so Paul sets about to bring knowledge and light into their darkness. And he proclaims to them what he knows to be true about God and he wants to correct their wrong religious understanding. And here in, 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 in a summary form is his argument. If you turn to verse 24, first thing he points out is that God is the creator of all things. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. We always try to make God manageable. And, uh, and of course, this idea of building temples and little houses is sort of like, well, that's your space, God. You, you stay in there. But what a ludicrous thought. If God created the heavens and earth, you can't build a little house for him and put him in a box. We don't create a place for God. God actually created a place for us, the whole world. Secondly, God is the sustainer of all things. Verse 25. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you see that God's not dependent on us? He doesn't need Anything from our hands? He doesn't need our little offerings, our little treats that we put on a shelf to him or something like that. But rather, we are dependent on him. We're dependent on him for the next breath. And uh, as he says, he gives life and breath to everyone. He gives it, he grants it. And if he chooses not to give you the next breath, then it's over in about three minutes. God is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And, and thirdly, he's the ordainer of all things. Verse 26. Have a look at that. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You know, um, 
This notion that God is hard to find and that he's lost and we've got to seek him out is all wrong. We're the ones who are lost. He's the one who's taken the first steps towards us. He's created order in the world, peoples, nations, lands, history, and he's created order so that we can reach out and find the one who orders everything. Look at verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then he quotes one of, his own, one of their own poets, for in him we live and move and have our being. So there's the logic. God has created us. He's uh, sustained us. Um, he's ordained our, our lives for this very thing that we would seek him, reach out to him, find him. This God who's not far from any one of us. The great mistake we make is to think that actually somehow we've got to make up our own view of God, that we come up with our own view of how we like to think of God, rather than reaching out to the God who is actually there and has already revealed himself to us. Now I think the logic and persuasiveness of Paul's case still holds today. And just think for this, about this for a moment. Why are you in church today? Because God has put a desire in us to reach out to him that we might know him personally. But to enable that personal relationship with the living God, which is in fact possible, then we must hear the end of Paul's speech to these academic philosophers in the Areopagus. Look at verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. See, that's the problem with idolatry. It's coming up with how we like to view God. And we might not have created our own little uh, physical statue of gold or silver or wood, but we might kind of create our own God of our own imaginations, a God as we like to think of him in our heads. And it could be sort of just basically a very self-indulgent God who just thinks that I'm basically okay and I can do anything I want and God will, it's just fine with God. We can create this self-indulgent daddy God. But, but what if that's not the God who's actually there? Or we might even have created this sort of fantasy world where there is no God. Uh, we have a make-believe view that looks at an ordered, created cosmos, uh, an amazing universe, and you say, oh, it comes completely out of nothing. There's no God, that's what I want to think. Very, very odd way to think. And people have that delusional uh, idea that there is no God at all. Well, people create all sorts of false understandings of either the God who's not there or, or, or the God as they'd like to think of him. But you know what Paul says? That needs to change. Look at verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead yes there is a false religion uh, there, there are false substitutes and idols for the true God 
and false religion is a problem in the world. Now, as a Christian, I want to respectfully disagree with those wrong views of God. I, I want to show respect and dignity for all people's views. As I've already argued, Christianity uh, has never succeeded with the sword by the state. It is always by persuasion and debate. And our role is even when we say things are wrong to do it respectfully. But we want to respectfully disagree. There is a, a false religion that is very harmful and does, does create a mess in the world. And God is saying he's overlooked that ignorance, but now is the time to repent. Now God calls on all people to harmonize their lives with certain realities. And what are those realities? It's this, that there is a God. That there is a judgment day. That this God who created us, who sustained us, who ordained us uh, and uh, our whole lives, one day we will have to give an account to him on the day of judgment. And we know that there's a judgment day because the judge has already been declared. He's been named Jesus Christ because he rose from the dead. His resurrection is the proof that one day all will be raised to judgment. And as the first raised, he's been appointed the judge. And now is the time to harmonize our lives with this reality. And how do you harmonize your life? And the answer is the word repentance. God calls all people everywhere to repent. And what is repentance? It is to stop thinking wrongly about God. It is to turn from our idols and our worship of things that don't deserve our worship to turn to God to seek his forgiveness and a restored relationship with him where we rightly worship and honor and live for the God who is actually there. And he's made that forgiveness possible by sending his son, Jesus. The first time in, in human history, uh, living this life that took him to purposefully to the cross where we die in the place of sinners so that forgiveness could come, where we die in the place for idol worshippers so that forgiveness could come, where he would die in the place for people who've all their lives ignored God and chased foolish things. He came to die on a cross for people like that so that we could be forgiven and that we could be made right with God. That's why he came. And Jesus has been changing and transforming people's lives from that day right up to now. Uh, a few months back, a friend of mine, Paul Dale, was here. If you were here on July the 16th, you'd have, you'd have heard Paul. And he shared a little bit about his story of how he came to follow Jesus. And because his story relates to this world religions idea, I just want to give you a brief excerpt to remind you of his story, if we can put that on. Did you grow up in a Christian family, Paul? What was your background? No, I grew up in a loving family. I was born uh, in Coventry in the UK, um, youngest of three kids, loving family, no reference to God at all in my upbringing. Um, my upbringing was marked by suffering. My brother had cancer when he was eight, I was six, and then my dad had a terminal illness when I was 11, and he was sick for nine years. And so my whole childhood was marked by suffering. But God wasn't on the agenda at all. I just thought that was just life. That was the luck of life. Um, I went to university when I was 18. I met a Buddhist by the name of David who tried to persuade me to be a Buddhist. 
And that sort of put God on the agenda. And I thought, well, if, I, if I'm going to look into Buddhism, I should look into all world religions. I went to a bookshop, I bought six books, one on Buddhism, one on Hinduism, one on Islam, one on Christianity, one on atheism, and one on New Ageism. And I literally spent 18 months investigating world religions. Days before the Excel spreadsheets had a big chart on my wall, what they believed, uh, could they be mutually exclusive, etc. Uh, after 18 months, reached a conclusion that either Islam or Christianity could be true. I then met with a Muslim for a year and a Christian for a year. I turn up every week with a page of questions. Never went to church at this point. Um, I was reading my Bible one night, and there's a question in the Bible where Jesus says to Peter, who do you say I am? And it was that question that really changed my life. Mm. Who do I say Jesus Christ is? And after 18 months of investigating, I thought he is God. He did die on a cross, he did rise again, and therefore that changes everything. Mm. And so I knelt by my bed and, and acknowledged Jesus Christ as, as my savior. Uh, I wasn't living a Christian life. Uh, I was in a pub in Oxford one night, and my best friend who had grown up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, went to youth group, sat me down and said, are you a Christian? I said, I think I am. He said, no, you're not. You're not living a Christian life. Let me tell you what it means to be a Christian. And so he spent two hours explaining how to live the Christian life. I went home that night and acknowledged Jesus Christ as both my savior and my Lord. And that was in May, 1990. So God used a Buddhist and a lapsed Christian uh, to bring me to Christ. Fix the world by fixing religion? Well, yes, if that means rejecting false religion and false worship, and in repentance, turning to God and seeking his forgiveness, asking him to transform our lives as he did in the life of the Apostle Paul, as he did there in Paul Dale, as he's done in my life and many others in this church. God has been, uh, from the Bible we've read it today, God has been patiently waiting for us to repent. God commands us to repent. God has given us advance warning of the day of judgment through the resurrection of Jesus in order to call us to repent. Have you repented? Will you repent today? Well, I suppose there'll be the same sort of responses that Paul saw in Athens. Verse 32, some hearing about the resurrection from the dead sneered. And perhaps you'll go away mocking and sneering. Others said, well, we, we want to hear you again on this subject. They wanted to make further inquiry, and um, if you've got some more questions, you, know, you can come back this Thursday evening. There's Glad You Asked, where you can ask all the questions that you want as they think about the big questions that people wrestle with in the world. And after the end of that, we're going to do a Life Explored course if you still want to think some more. We'd love to hear your questions. We'd love to uh, talk with you about them. Some of the people, verse 34, believed and responded. And I don't know, perhaps there's some people and you've been coming along week by week and you've been hearing and now you know that it's true and you need to respond. And I want to put a prayer that you could use this morning to repent. If we could put it up. It's quite a simple prayer. It's not magical. It's basically saying um, sorry, thank you, and please. 
I'm sorry for ignoring you and worshiping lesser things. I need your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Please forgive me and change me to become more like Jesus. And perhaps you want to pray that very prayer today. I'm going to pray it slowly. And if you want to repent and get right with God, why don't you echo that prayer in your own heart and life and you talk to God along with me this morning. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, I'm sorry for ignoring you. and worshiping lesser things. I need your forgiveness. Thank you that Jesus came to save sinners like me. Please forgive me. Come into my life to change me, to become more like Jesus. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer this morning, today's been a great day.